The first Bible reading is from uh, Psalm uh, 126. And for those with a Bible, it's, I think it's on page 441. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Our second reading is from Colossians chapter 2. I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised, in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. 
since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Thanks, Lynn. Thanks, Tim. Let me have my welcome. If you haven't met before, my name is Paul. I want to uh, also welcome uh, Christina and David, so Christina Erickson that was. I met with uh, these guys uh, earlier this week because I'm marrying them for the, for the second time. They, they got married over in the UK. They're having another wedding here in Sydney. Christina was here uh, in our first year of Church by the Bridge. And just it was just great meeting with Christina to think what God has done for this church in the last seven years. So when she left, one congregation, just 6 p.m., comes back seven years later with six congregations. So it's good to have you guys with us and good to see you guys tonight. We're, we're all tired, aren't we, after a long day? So why don't I pray that the Lord might speak to us powerfully through the word. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this place. Thank you for the people around us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. I thank you, Father, that you long for us to grow and deepen in our, our knowledge and love of you. So please do a mighty work tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight I want to think about the topic of spiritual maturity. So who are the most spiritually mature people that you know? Who are the people when you think about them, you think their faith is strong and they just ooze maturity in Christ? Now what makes them spiritually mature? Is spiritual maturity an age thing? And so the older somebody is, they're automatically more mature spiritually. Is maturity, spiritual maturity, a, a length of time you've been a Christian kind of thing? So the longer you've been a Christian, you're automatically more mature in Christ. Is spiritual maturity an intellectual thing? So the more Bible knowledge that you have, you're automatically more mature. Is spiritual maturity an experiential kind of thing? So uh, the more wonderful uh, experience that you've had, you're automatically more mature spiritually. And the answer is no. Uh, the Bible says that you could have been a Christian for 50 years and sat in church for 50 years and studied theology for 50 years and had the most amazing visions and dreams and experiences and yet still be spiritually immature. Because spiritual maturity is all about how close you are to the Lord Jesus Christ, how much you know about him, his character, his promises. It's about whether you are plumbing the depths of the riches of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a mark of maturity. Maybe I'll ask you a slightly different question. How, how, how do you spot the spiritually mature? Is it just knowledge? No. Is it the people who pray the, the most sound-sounding prayers, the textbook prayers, are they the most mature? No. Here's how you spot the spiritually mature person. It's about their character. And they actually ooze Christ-likeness. 
they are kind and they are forgiving and they are gentle and they are are patient and when you spend time with them uh, you feel like you're in the presence of somebody who just knows Jesus it's about the choices that they make uh, the decisions that they make that they're in line with what Jesus would do and what Jesus would say it's about the concerns that they have concerns about people, concerns about their friends and their family and the environment and the world and the concern for the lost. And that's a, a mark of spiritual maturity, that their character is like Christ and their choices are like Christ and their concerns are like Christ. Now, I hope that is your desire, to be mature in Christ, to keep growing in your knowledge and, and love of the Lord Jesus. I hope you're here tonight and, and you're saying, I, I want to know Jesus better next year than I do today. In 50 years' time, I, I still want to know Jesus better and better and better. I hope you don't want to stagnate and you don't want to settle for mediocrity or the, the mundane Christian life, but you want to be a mature believer. I'm going to put it out there. We, we, we've grown a lot in the last seven years. Numerically, that is. 40 to 507 years is great numerical growth. But have we seen similar spiritual growth? Are we seeing people digging deeper into Jesus? And we've got lots of activities, markets, lunches, working bees. But are we seeing people digging deeper into Christ? I love seeing people saved. I love the fact we've got an excellent Christianity Explore course and Simply Christianity course, and I love seeing people come to faith for the first time, but it's not just about people coming to faith. It's whether those people are growing in their faith and whether they're still believers in five years' time and ten years' time and fifty years' time and the day they meet their Savior. See, I've been a pastor long enough to know that people drift and people wander and people who once seemed so close to Christ are no longer walking with Jesus. And so as your pastor, as your friend, my, my longing is to protect you from that drifting and to protect you from stagnating. I just want you to stick with Jesus and mature in Christ. That was Paul's desire. Remember chapter 1, verse 28? He says, we proclaim Christ. We, we preach Jesus and we're admonishing everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect or mature in Christ. He's saying, I just want people to keep growing and to keep growing and keep growing more and more and more until the day they meet the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, if you're a believer tonight, you are part of that marathon race. It's not a sprint. It's not about how well you started off. It's not about how many books you read in your first year as a Christian. It's not about how many times you've been to church. It's about whether you just keep running and keep going until the day you cross that finish line. And let me just say, I, I, I don't care whether you're stood at this church in 10 years' time or some other church in 10 years' time, so long as you are still walking with Jesus and bathing in the glorious riches of Christ. So how are we going to do this? How are you going to make sure that you grow in your maturity? And the answer is really simple, deeply profound. 
Here it is. Just go home tonight with this phrase in your ears. Keep knowing Jesus and keep growing in Jesus. Keep knowing Jesus and keep growing in Jesus. The key verse tonight is verses 6 and 7. It's the, the key verse to the whole letter. Uh, at 945 Church, we've been learning this is a memory verse. And that's a really good thing to do, just to memorize this verse. Here's what Paul says. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. So then, verse 6, because of everything I've just told you about Christ, what has Paul told us about Christ? Can you remember? Jesus is Lord of creation. The whole creation was, was, was made by him and was made for him. There's nothing that has been made that Jesus did not make. Because of that, because he's Lord of creation, because he's, he's Lord of the church, the new creation, because he is the sufficient Savior, because of everything that you know about Christ, just as you received him as Lord, continue to live in him. He's saying to the Colossians, remember the day you received Jesus Christ as your Lord? Remember the day when, when Jesus Christ wasn't just the creator and the sustainer and the saviour, but he was your Lord? Remember that day? Remember the day when you prayed the prayer and you said, I want you, Jesus Christ, to be my Lord and saviour. Remember that day? But your Christian life didn't stop the day that you were converted. Your Christian life is about every day walking with Jesus. That's why he says in verse 6, just as you received him as your Lord, continue to live in him. Or more literally, continue to walk in him. I love that phrase, walk in Jesus. It's saying every step that you take, every choice that you make, every concern that you have, every minute of every day, what you say, what you don't say, what you do, what you don't do, Jesus shapes it all. So keep knowing him and keep growing in him. Verse 7, you, you're rooted in him, so make sure you're being built up in him. That, that's the, the sense of that. You are rooted in Christ, so keep being built up in Christ. He's saying like, that your life is like a plant where before you can actually grow upwards, you need to grow downwards. Make sure the roots are strong. What are the roots? Jesus, your Lord and your Savior. And as you dig deeper into him, you are built up in him. So you bear fruit for him. You become like him. Strengthened in the faith, verse 7. As you were taught. So you, you don't start with Jesus and then move on to other things. You just keep learning more about Jesus. Learning and yearning and meditating and studying and just plumbing the depth of the riches of Christ. And verse 7, overflowing with thankfulness. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? Because you've got the roots and because you've got the foundations, because you're growing and because you're being strengthened, you'll be overflowing, you'll be erupting like a fountain with thankfulness and gratitude for who Jesus is. Why is it all about Jesus? Look how Paul describes Jesus back in verse 2. It's extraordinary. He says, My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart, united in love, so they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order they may know the mystery of God, 
that was hidden for, for, for generations. His name is Christ, the Savior, the, the Reconciler, the Lord. And in Christ, verse 3, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's saying like Jesus is, is the treasure chest. He's the place where you go to him and you, you discover a new nugget of wisdom and a new nugget of, of knowledge. He's not saying once you know Christ, you have all the answers to life's questions and challenges. But he says as you keep exploring Christ in more and more detail, you keep discovering these hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. For me this year, it's been all about knowing what it means for Christ to be present with me. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And I've discovered glorious treasures in that one phrase this year. You just keep on knowing about his forgiveness and his fullness and his mercy and his kindness and his justice and his compassion and his faithfulness to his promises because uh, your wisdom and your knowledge is not going to come from this world but it will come from Christ. So keep knowing him and keep growing in him. Because it's always the same. When people drift, it's always the same. There's something or, or someone who is offering them something which is apparently better than Jesus or more attractive than Jesus. And you just shift your focus. And you stop learning and you stop putting down the roots and you, you stop growing. Well, I, I think a particular issue for Sydney is that we, we live off the knowledge of Christ that we had 10 years ago. And we haven't actually matured in 10 years. It's that daily digging deeper into Jesus. I want to imagine that uh, you're building a house and you're building your dream house. What's the first part of the house that you build? The foundations. And you spend time laying down the solid foundations. I, if the foundations aren't right, the whole house will crumble. But you don't just stop at the foundations, do you? Isn't it crazy just to have foundations and put your bed on the foundations and put your microwave there? I, you build the walls. And then you put the windows in. And then you have different rooms and you work out where things are going to go. And once you've built your dream house, what do you do? You live in it. <laughs> you don't just say, whoa, I built my dream house. You actually bother to live in it. And that's the analogy here for the Christian life. You lay the foundations and the firm foundations are your Lord Jesus Christ. But you don't just stop there. You build the walls and you put in the windows and the doors and then once you've done that, you, you live in it and you enjoy living in this most glorious house. And here's an observation. Some of us are too easily satisfied with a little fibro shack or a little tin hut. And what God has offered us is a, is a mansion. A mansion by the ocean with the most glorious views and everything you could possibly want in this house. If only we'd just live in it and explore it and discover all these little nooks and crannies and things about Jesus that you never knew before. And you go, wow, what a great house to live in. That's the promise here. Was it about Christ that Paul mentions? He mentions his fullness 
and his forgiveness. The fullness is there in verse 9. Extraordinary verse. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ. He's saying, the God who dwelt with his people at Sinai on the mountain, uh, the God who dwelt with his people in the tabernacle, and the God who dwelt with the people in the temple, he now lives in bodily form, and his name is Jesus. Remember how John put it, the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us? The bodily form of, of Jesus Christ, that was that real, tangible presence of God. He is fully God, and wow, verse 10, you have been given fullness in Christ. He's saying, if you know Jesus, you have fullness. So why would you look anywhere else for satisfaction and security when you've got total fullness in Christ? And you have total forgiveness. I love the truth of verses 13 and 14, such glorious truths. You were dead in your sins, the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, the things that you'd done wrong, the good things you'd failed to do. And when you were dead and helpless, verse 13, God made you alive with Christ. God gave you new life in Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. And what he's saying there is that it's like all, all, all the, the, the commands that you'd failed to keep, all the ways that you've done the wrong thing or, or the good things that you failed to do, it's all there on a certificate and you don't want to parade that certificate, do you? You don't want to hang it up for all to see, but God sees it and God took that certificate and what did he do with it? He nailed it to an old wooden cross and he covered it with the blood of his son. And so God doesn't see your wrongs. It's all forgiven, all wiped clean what we just sung. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it whiter than snow. Isn't that a glorious relief? You can't pay your debts. You can't earn forgiveness. But God has given you that in Christ. The word I love in verse 13 is actually the word all. He forgave us all of our sins. And I wonder whether that's a stumbling block to your maturity here tonight. I wonder whether you are holding on to some past sin or some past shame that you feel so bad about that you're not willing to leave it at the old wooden cross and say, thank you that you've forgiven me. It's really simple to be spiritually mature, keep knowing Jesus, keep growing in Jesus. Know his fullness, know his forgiveness. So why is Paul banging on about this? Because these Christians are surrounded by dangers and temptations, just as we are today. And Paul mentions four dangers that will drag you away from Christ. And I've seen these four things drag lots of people away from Jesus. The first one is empty intellectualism or philosophy. He says in verse 8, see to it that, that no one takes you captive or literally no one kidnaps you. <laughs> that you're not kidnapped through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human traditions rather than that on Christ. 
Paul's not against intellect. He's not against philosophy. But he is against empty and hollow philosophy. Uh, when we're so so concerned about you know, uh, grappling with the doctrine of original sin or, or God's sovereignty and, and free will or we study the mind of man or the place of reason and the meaning of our soul and, and they're good discussions, they're important questions but, but when you're so concerned about the intellectual philosophies that you're, you drift away from Christ, you've got a real issue there. I love how the message translates it. It says, watch out for people who try to dazzle you with big words and intellectual double talk. They want to drag you off into endless arguments and never amount to anything. And there are people like that. They read lots of philosophy books and lots of deep theology books and they they have these intellectual gymnastics going on but it's not leading them closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. So be warned of empty intellectualism. Be warned of what I've called condemning legalism or really just religion. <laughs> Verse 16, he says, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality of is found in Christ. He says, just be careful about religion. So the Colossian Christians would have been told, uh, what they could eat and what they could drink and which festivals to keep and how to keep the Sabbath. And Paul is saying, just be very careful. Watch out for anyone who tells you that you that your faith in Christ must be expressed in a particular religious, law-keeping kind of way. He's saying, don't live in shadowlands. All these ceremonies, all these rituals, they were helpful so you could know God, but, but the real thing is here. Jesus is here. You know the problem with religion? It leads to being judgmental. So someone asked me this year, what are you doing for Lent? And I said, same as I always do, I'm going to read my Bible and pray and go to church. What are you giving up for Lent? Nothing, I just want to keep reading my Bible and pray and go to church. And you could see this person automatically judge me. Uh, as though I was not a mature Christian. And it's the same with all religious liturgies and and ceremonies, whether it's formal or informal, whether it's to do with communion or confirmation or fasting or raising your hands in worship, all these things that might help you to know Jesus better, please don't make them law and rules and regulations. The third danger I've called mindless mysticism or just experience. Verse 18, don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He's lost connection with the head, with Jesus. This is how the message puts it. Don't don't tolerate people who insist that you join their obsession with angels and that you seek out visions. They're a lot of hot air, that's all they are. They're completely out of touch with the source of life, who is Christ. He's saying, uh, these people who, who bang on about visions and dreams and experiences about how you feel, if it doesn't draw you closer to Jesus, then don't be led astray by them. I love the way he describes them in verse 18. They go into great detail about what they've seen. 
And they spend five minutes building up this expectation about this amazing experience that they've had who's, that's totally transformed their life and how if you had this experience, it would transform your life as well and then you really, really want it. No, no, don't mishear me. I do believe in a, an all-powerful, miraculous God and the Spirit of God who, who can give visions and can give dreams, uh, but he doesn't promise that. Uh, the problem is, is when, th- when that vision or that experience becomes essential for your Christian faith. That, that's, what it, that's what happens. It leads to this spiritual elitism where because you haven't had this experience, you feel like a second-rate Christian. Just make sure that any experience draws you closer to your head who is Christ, not further away from him. Here's the fourth danger, useless asceticism. And I can't spell that word either. It's hard to say with my speech impediment, but useless asceticism. That's verses 20 onwards. Uh, Since you die with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Don't handle, don't taste, and don't touch. These are all destined to perish with use. Uh, he's saying, please don't let anyone tell you what you can and can't do. Don't make rules uh, that mean that you're either saved or not saved. And we do it all the time. Now, if you're a Christian, uh, you can't go there, and you can't eat this, and you can't wear that, and you can't drink that. And if you're a Christian, you can't date that person, you can't live in that server, and you can't spend your money, uh, and I'll just micromanage your life for you. Uh, and it's such a, a fine line, isn't it? Because cause my desire is that I equip you to live for Jesus. And of course, there are things that are going to be helpful and unhelpful in that. But when you make these things rules that you have to do to be saved, you've stepped over that line. When those helpful guidelines become salvation-dependent rules, you've crossed that line. Let's take drinking alcohol. There may be lots of reasons why you choose not to drink. You might not like the taste of it. It might be a big weakness for you. You might be aware of the damage that have done to other people through drinking alcohol. But just make sure that you don't make it a rule. The only do not in Scripture is do not get drunk. Here's the problem. We, we like rules. We've grown up with rules. Rules make us feel good, but they never work. They never work to, to curb sinful behavior. They don't change hearts. What you need is the power of Christ at work in you, a deeper love for Jesus. That'll transform you, not the rules. There's a story of a man who became a Christian and... Uh, a good friend of him said, I, I feel sorry for you because uh, now you're a Christian, you can't drink and you can't go clubbing and you can't do this and you can't do that. He says, no, no I can do whatever I want. I can go clubbing, I can drink, I can do this. It's just that now I, um, I'm a believer, I don't want to do it. I don't want to go clubbing, I don't want to drink because now I know Christ. See, the, the rules might help you live for Jesus, but they don't save you. And there are dangers. Intellectualism, religion, experiences, and rules. And my plea for tonight is just keep knowing Jesus and keep growing in Jesus. That's why we're here, isn't it? Isn't that why you're here every week? Not just to be entertained. Not just to be amused. Not because you're stuck on some roster 
but because you want to know Jesus Christ better. And that's why I keep doing what I'm doing. That hard but delightful work of ministry. And I have to admit, I do resonate with the Apostle Paul in so many ways. I'll finish with this. 2 verse 1, he says, I want you to know, I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you. It's hard work, it's laborious, it's toilsome, it's a heavy work. And you're saying, well, what's heavy about ministry? Here's what heavy is about, about ministry. It's praying for people, wrestling in prayer for you guys, wrestling in prayer that you keep knowing Jesus and keep growing in Jesus. It's the hard work of proclamation, of persuading people to keep looking at Jesus and warning people and instructing people and agonizing over each word of the sermon. It's hard, hard work. And the emotional toil of seeing people walk away, that's hard work. So why do I do it? Verse 2. My purpose is that, is that you may be encouraged in heart, united in love, and you may have the full riches of complete understanding that you may know Christ. That's why we do it. So that you may know the comfort and the courage that Christ brings, that you may have that powerful bond of love and that you would have the precious knowledge of Christ. So who are the spiritually mature people that you know? The people who keep on knowing Jesus and growing in Jesus. And my prayer is that that will be you here tonight. Why don't we finish tonight by, by saying to each other, Verses 6 and 7. Saying to people in this room, this great mantra for spiritual maturity. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Amen.